Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller. And I'm Benjamin Solar. Hi, Ben. What's up? What is up? I'm extremely caffeinated in a very positive way, <laughs> I think. So if I talk too fast, let me know. Maybe you at home listening want to slow down the speed on your uh, podcast <laughs> app. But I'm good. Feeling great. I'm so excited to talk about this interview. Yeah, tell us. So this is actually a friend of yours? It is. And this is a friend expert. of mine. She is a friend and an expert. Right. One of the smartest people I have ever met, genuinely, her name is Vanessa Generelli. She is a technician. She's an educator. When I met her, she was working at GitHub, which was then acquired by Microsoft. And it's where a lot of this interview, a lot of the, the work and the experience that went into this really wonderful book she just wrote came from. She is an expert in change management. She's gone to Stanford Business School. She runs change management workshops. She's really focused on helping both teams and individuals in teams and organizations see an outcome together and get like good results for everybody involved. And if that means you walk away, it means you walk away, but it means you walk away with a plan and knowing who you are and what you want. And if it means staying within the org, it's learning how to play nice there and get everybody's goals met, basically. Yeah. So you gave us two things already to think about before we play the interview. Should we just play it and then we can recap some more? Yeah, I guess so. I, I would just say stay tuned if you have ever gone through a big change at work or your leader has changed or you haven't been sure about what you want in your future, because this interview will give you some guidance on all of that stuff in a really clear, approachable, just smart, friendly way. So let's do it. Let's do it. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is an absolute joy and pleasure. Today, I'm getting to talk to one of my, in real life, longtime favorite people, Vanessa Generelli. You're an educator. You are a technologist. You are an incredible supporter of the people you love. You are a smart lady at large. Can you introduce yourself, though, the way that you like to be introduced for the purposes, I'd say, of, of this book and this interview? Yeah, sure. My name is Vanessa Generelli. I am the COO of an outfit called WorkBrew. I am the author of this forthcoming book, Surviving Change at Work, and I do change management for the tech industry. And she also brings a magical, confident, real, trustworthy voice to a topic that can be a little bit overwhelming or kind of abstract. I'd say abstract because until you have a big change happen at work, you don't really understand how big a deal it is or what's going on or what the repercussions might be. This book can help you feel so much more confident in that. But I do have I do have a quibble. Um, I would have titled this something else. The reason that I felt like it wasn't an accurate title for the content itself is because it's so much more optimistic mm. and empowering and powerful than surviving change at work implies. Whenever I hear surviving, I just think like, ooh, scraping by. But this book, I've got to say, like, this is not about scraping by. This book is about seeing what is going on in your organization and turning it to your advantage to help you become the person you want to be. Can you write marketing copy, Caitlin? <laughs> <laughs> But it sounds really great. I've been calling it the missing manual for tech employees. Ooh, and yes, yes. The reason why I've been calling it that, well, there are like three patterns that I detected that drove me to write the book. And the first pattern was that, you know, we get hired at organizations for a very specific domain skill. You know, for you, it's content. For other folks, it's, you know, marketing or product or engineering or legal 
And in order to succeed at your job, you have to be badass at that domain. But there's also so many other things outside of that domain that you need to be successful. Mm. And no one really teaches them to you, right? The sort of like reading the macroeconomic climate of your company and like understanding how to get investments and being candid with your manager about where you want to go with your career. We have all learned these lessons by trial and error. And I wanted to give a gift to all of the individual contributors out there of all these lessons that are outside your core domain that really give you this sort of power up in your position in the organization. That is exactly how I felt reading this book. It is just such an incredible buoy for someone who is suddenly thrown into a pretty churning sea of organizational change. So I think the whole premise here is that being armed with the right information about your your tech company's life cycle is an incredible superpower. And you said that the ability to anticipate next steps, predict mm. where resources might flow, mm -hmm. and decide if you wish to consciously take the next step with your current company is those are the three specific superpowers. Mm -hmm. And you're helping people predict not just the organization's future, but to design their own future with this book. Totally. How do you figure out what you actually want? Oh, man, great question, right? Uh, I <laughs> <laughs> So it's really difficult to see for yourself uh, a possible future. And so I developed a method that's kind of a, a combination of a few different methods. But the possible futures formula is a tool to take a look around at the people who you professionally admire and identify what about their role appeals to you. And then identifying your must-haves, right? This is the work that you will make trade-offs in order to get. This is, you know, three to five criteria that are super important to you. For me, it's mission-driven work, remote work, and colleagues I admire. So the, the possible futures formula you were saying... It's an exercise in this book, which, by the way, this book is filled with exercises. This is not a book that you read. This is a book that you do. Yeah, I would refer to it as a book you use, a book that you don't just like consume it once and you're done. Like it's a yeah. book that you return to after you have more experience under your belt or at inflection points in your career. The Possible Futures formula is one of those tools where once we identify our must-haves, we assign each of them a weight. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, these are tools from Paul Fletter's at Stanford's course on complex decision making. It's a way to quantify what you want, assess each, each possible future with these weighted must haves. And you get this numerical quantifiable output about each potential direction your life could take. And it helps you compare them against each other and see what pulls you? What could it potentially give you all of the things that you're looking for? I love that. Quantifying the the seemingly unquantifiable is such a, a difficult task to get your mind around. And I think that's why I really liked the exercises in this book. But maybe I think I might have missed a step here in starting us off. And I, I guess it goes back to when a change happens in an organization, uh, the first reaction, I think, is holy shit. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Holy oh, shit. Yeah. It's, it's absorbing news. So say, you know, an acquisition or a merger is announced or a huge restructuring is announced. The first reaction is, holy shit. The second yes. reaction is like, what does this mean for me? Yes. And then when those question, when that like reaction and question arises, what is the next thing you tell people to do in that, that like high emotion state of, wow, I just got this huge piece of news. Now what? Well, you know, first let's validate that feeling, right? Because before mm. we, before we even move on to the solution space, we know that change in organization hurts. And, you know, tech moves super fast, but no one teaches you how to do it gracefully. And here I'm building on the work of Dr. Rosabeth Moss Cantor at Harvard Business School. And she has dedicated her life's work to figuring out why change in organizations is so painful. I think she identifies 10 different aspects of why change hurts. There's loss of control, excess uncertainty, surprise loss of face, concerns about future competence, ripple effects. And, you know, this can also kick up past resentment too. So if there's a big change that sometimes there's like the cumulative effect of, you know, shit ton of changes that have been hard. And then there's just one straw that breaks the camel's back. And all of a sudden you have this explosion of big feelings and you'll see it when in your colleagues, you know, sometimes they'll rant in public channels, uh, or try to go above someone's head, uh, or, you know, gossip or, and this is trying to resist the change that's happening, right? Cause it's mm-hmm. so painful. So first off, let's give some space to process that grief because I don't think as an industry, we make enough space to process that, you yeah. know, change is loss, right? Like all change is loss. Absolutely. I wanted to get to that at some point in this conversation, too. So I'm glad you took us there. I think the first instinct is to try to resist it and try to fix it. And it's really hard to take a step back and just give yourself space to, you know, kind of have a little freak out and understand that there will be a lot of uncertainty uh, moving forward. And then the second step, once you've worked out those feelings, felt them through to completion, then you can be in the space of, okay, so where is the organization going on the one hand? And what do I want on the other? And then if you can connect those two, you know, then you're cooking with gas, right? Then you're in a place of power. But let's not underestimate the amount of pain that change, <laughs> that changes have on employees in an organization. Yeah, absolutely. Even when I think you note this in your book too, even when the the change is mostly positive, totally. There's still pain. I have a a very dear friend who is from Blinkist who is now shortly going to be moving on to start her own thing, her own business, and she's been dreaming about it for years. This was just the right juncture to do it. And the other day she was like, "Caitlin, everything is actually really good, but I'm so sad." And uh, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, of course you are. You spent, I don't know, I think six to eight years here developing really amazing things. And you you have to acknowledge that our work lives are not just our work lives. As much as we might try to segment off or partition those different parts of our lives, we still invest ourselves in it. And when you're saying goodbye to a way that your organization works or in an organization altogether, you're saying goodbye to a past version of yourself. You're saying goodbye to work that you did. And you're also totally. saying goodbye to futures you'd imagined. 
we're, we're reintegrating a new self for doing the work of identity development. And, and so we're all sort of grappling with, okay, so who are we now? And how is that different? All transitions happen. They start with an ending. Hmm. And then there's this neutral zone where, you know, what's next hasn't firmed up yet. And people thrash and they have trouble with the sort of fog. And then one day something shifts and there's a new beginning. So then (laughs) step one. So, you know, there's holy shit. There's absorbing news. There's processing feelings and acknowledging the grief of this. And then there's figuring out what you want, right? There's getting Mm -hmm. into alignment with yourself first. And that's using tools like what you described, the possible futures tool. And then there's alignment with others in your organization. Yeah. And one of the parts that I thought was just so helpful, and one of the things that you have helped me with in the past, is figuring out how to sell your ideas. If so much of this book is about getting what you want and your future, and so much of getting what you want is about being able to sell your dream to other people. Totally. And one of the things that I I liked in here too is you make this distinction between the super communicator and the ideologue. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the super communicator and the ideologue and the differences there and what might be helpful to adapt here so that you can get your ideas sold and get some traction when you've figured out what you want? Totally. Uh, you may in your organization, fair listener, recognize <laughs> two archetypes. And the first one is the super communicator. And the super communicator is the person who moves through the org with ease their suggestions get adopted. Leaders pick up their turns of phrase and use them. That's one archetype. And the other is the ideologue. This is a person who is very attached to being right. And they argue their point of view with passion mm-hmm. and logic. You know, they're, they're very attached to whatever decision they think should be made. But the super communicator has figured out how to, how to do a few things. They figured out how to package the value of their idea. They've figured out how to analyze their audience. That means when you're, when you're crafting your message for a decision maker to say yes, you need to identify the pain that the organization feels currently. And then the dream, you know, in the ideal world, how would this work? And then the last piece is the fix, which is your proposal or idea. A decision maker needs to know what they're saying yes or no to exactly, right? And you don't want a messy message. You want to keep your message very, very clear about the problem that you're solving. And Pain Dream Fix does exactly that. Nice. Could you possibly give an example of what would be a clear message versus a muddled message? So... Here is an example of a messy message that I have received when I was a manager. Mm -hmm. The messy message is, we'd like to implement Salesforce. Everyone agrees it's the tool they prefer. (laughs) And I was like, huh, okay. Well, but what is the pain the organization is feeling? Let's sharpen our pencils here. Let's go back. And the pain is we were missing sales leads. And so to go from the messy message... We'd like to implement Salesforce. Everyone agrees it's the tool they prefer to a clear message, which is we missed 26 leads last week because we're managing them in a spreadsheet. 
we can increase sales efficiency with a CRM. And that's the ask. Got it. So it seems like the power there is in specificity and numbers and demonstrated value to the organization. Awesome. I wanted to ask you, this is moving slightly away from a messy message, but oftentimes the way that we can link this, I guess, is that when you've decided what you want and you're seeking alignment within your organization, you've got to take it to somebody. Yeah. And that somebody is usually your manager. But one of the things that tends to change when a business sustains, you know, a big new something happening like an acquisition or a merger is that leadership changes. Oh, totally. And if people realize, oh, crap, my boss is I'm going to have a new boss in two weeks. What do you recommend that they do to get ahead of leadership changes? Leadership changes are one of the most destabilizing things that happen in an organization. Mm-hmm. And they happen with surprising frequency. Uh, you know, the founder gets replaced or there will be a layer of management that, that gets integrated as the, as the org chart firms up. It can feel like a sense of ambient panic when you have a leadership change. It can feel like you are going into personal austerity mode where you just don't want to do anything that might bring you like joy or calm because you don't want to spend the money because you're, you know, in your head, you're like building your financial bunker about what could happen. And leadership changes follow some really clear time tested patterns. And one thing that always happens is the leader who comes in in their first 90 days they will make a lot of decisions and they will probably set goals for the organization at a very high level. So if it's a new manager for your team, it's probably clarifying the team's charter and whatever KPIs your team is tracking towards. If it's the, you know, a VP, they might have a certain way that they want the department to be run. Uh, or the CEO, there might be new business level, top level business goals that you're tracking towards. So listen to those goals and see how you can combine and weave together your ROI, what you want from your possible future with the goals that you're hearing from your new leader. And you could like yeah. always come in with a deck or a document. Caitlin, you and I have talked about the importance of a deck that outlines the work that you do and the impact mm-hmm. to the business, because mm-hmm. that really grounds your your conversation and helps the leader make sense of your role or your team. And from there, you also want to pay attention to what their background is, right? Are they a product-led leader? Are they, you know, a product-led leader is going to want to grow through features and through these sort of aspects of the product, whereas a sales-driven leader might look to extract value out of a mature offering. So their background will tell you a lot about what they choose to do too. And then there's also like a a certain amount of stepping back and waiting and and seeing what the decisions are going to be and analyzing those decisions, right? There's a chance they might decide to take the organization in a different direction and there might be a reduction in force around that. Like that's a really real thing. Mm -hmm. And if you're notice those decisions that the new leader makes and you can infer what sort of impact they want to make on the organization and then you can situate yourself in it. I love that. So it's like paying attention to 
Which is so much of what relating well is about, too. Paying attention to the motivations and the temperament and the personality of the person in front of you. So it's tuning into that new leader and figuring out what their next dance steps might be based upon what you can learn about them. And I think that when your organization is in flux, especially as you said, with something as um, as nervous making as leadership changes, we forget that we still have all of the faculties that we had before to step back mm. and observe mm-hmm. and make a smart choice. And I love that about this book that time and time again, you emphasize that you can do something here And it's about being smart and paying attention and using your imagination to extrapolate what will go on in the future. And here are the patterns to help you do that. Totally. And and most good managers are supportive of this kind of thinking. Most good Mm -hmm. leaders are. I did dozens of interviews for this book from CEOs to VPs to individual contributors to analysts. And what leaders consistently told me is they, when a direct report or an employee has a firm vision for what they want, leaders respect it more, not less. Mm -hmm. And because you're super candid about where you're, you know, are you going to be around for another two years? Are you going to be, are you looking to move, you know, sooner? Vanessa. Caitlin. Time is running down here. And I do always like to ask, um, toward the end of these interviews, if there's one thing that you would really like people to take away from this book, what is it? That you have more power than you think you do. And inside that is seeing your relationship with the organization as a conversation, as one where when they ask you to do things, that's an offer, right? You don't Mm -hmm. have to accept it. And what's within your control is the choice to either accept and take a step forward with the organization's offer and make that commitment or take a step back and pursue another path. Wonderful. Thank you. Vanessa Generally, (laughs) it has been an absolute pleasure. I want to give this book to every individual contributor I know. I think that even for people outside of the tech realm, it's really useful because of that lesson that you just encapsulated at the end there. You have more power than you think in most occasions, and it's a matter of identifying what you want and coming prepared. Welcome to the bookend. We're here, where we end with books. And a little bit more chat about this awesome, awesome interview. Yeah, you know, our perspective from Blinkist is really interesting because we got bought. Mm -hmm. Blinkist was acquired earlier this year. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, is that why you wanted to talk about this a little bit? I mean, it it felt immediate. She happened to have this book coming out. And honestly, she asked me to be a reader on it Mm -hmm. late last year. And I didn't have time right then, but I knew that she was working on it. And when this big change happened for us... I actually had like a basically a professional call with Vanessa and she talked me through some of these concepts. She's like, you know, all this is in my book. And right. I was like, right, right. Yes, it's in your book. Let's read your book. So, yeah, it was relevant. And then I realized that my friend had actually written something pretty awesome that I think people need. Mm-hmm. So what do you want to talk about? What sticks out to you? What do you want to what do you want to draw out? Otherwise, I can share what I wrote down, but I'm, yeah. I'm happy to hear. Well, I really liked this idea of the pain dream fix framework. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so, so useful. And with Pain Dream Fix as a way to frame your own narrative about the role you want or the projects you want to be working on, if you can figure out what the pain for the organization is, if you can figure out what the dream state is and make it make sense, and then propose a fix, and you can be the one to execute that, 
that's how you move around in a company. And it, she made it really, really simple. I thought it was really approachable and cool. And I also just like this whole approach of hers, which is basically know what you want, know what they want, state it clearly in a way that everybody wins and go and do it. And honestly, from what I've seen, nine times out of 10, that works if you can frame the problem the right way. Yeah, I noted, I noted there's no complain loudly in the process. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, there kind of is. Do you remember, I don't know exactly how we got into it, but this is when I swore in the interview. I was like, Vanessa, but the first step in a big change is for you to go, holy shit. Like you get, you get the news, you get well, to validate the emotion, right? Yeah. She was like, first of all, right. We never validate the fact that change is pain. Change is loss. loss. She says change all is change yeah. is loss. And I was like, yes, actually all change is loss in a way. And, and when you look up change management, when you start reading about it, when you go through blinks on it, it's all from the perspective of leadership. Mm-hmm. It's all like how to drive change, which usually means like, how to scare people because it's like, it's loss, it's different. And it's how to do it in the best way if yeah. you think it's the best thing or if it's going to be difficult. It's rarely kind of this thing of like, change is going to be fine. We yeah. needed this change. Yeah. This will be good. Here's how you can prepare yourself. But what I really like about this is how it feels so empowering for any role, yeah. including leads. Absolutely. Even leads have to go and do this and figure out how to communicate the best yeah. way. Absolutely. It's, I think she referred to it as the missing manual for employees. It's great. Yeah. But everybody's an employee. And honestly, I've never seen a book like this before, as you said. So, yeah. And, and this thing about the ideologue versus the expert communicator, right? Yeah. I identify with that as objectively as I can think about like my greatest moments at work. It's not being ideological. It's being really clear in what I've communicated. And that's usually how I've gotten what I've wanted. Yeah. It's a matter of figuring out what the goal is of the other person on the other side of the table, what their goals are. And also like this, you're part of something much bigger. Yeah. You know? Vanessa also has this nice way of making negotiation not feel dirty. Mm -hmm. There's a big part in the book about this and I loved it. The negotiation section is awesome. We did talk a little bit about it. Maybe we can release it as a bonus. It didn't make it into this episode. But if you ever have any trouble like wrapping your head around negotiation and figure out a way to make it feel empowering for you and not scary. And like, maybe you're asking for something you don't deserve, which are things I struggle with. This book is also for you. She explains really clearly that negotiation is a matter of getting everybody what they want, or at least a part of it. Yeah. Anyway, I love this interview. I'm so proud of her. I thought the book was great. I don't often like bring friends on here and plug them and I wouldn't do it unless I actually thought it was really useful. So should we make some recommendations? Yeah, I'll start. This actually is also a recommendation from Vanessa. It is a little bit out there to the left of this subject, but also relevant. The book is called Wintering. It's by Catherine May, and it is about getting through tough times and preparing yourself to get through tough times. Um, There's a really nice little piece of the blink that we have, and it says, To begin with, human life, like all natural life, comes in seasons. But we're encouraged to deny this simple fact and urged to put a positive spin on even the worst life experiences. In short, we're programmed to resist winter and act as if our lives are one long, continuous summer. Across social media, we're bombarded with inspirational quotes, encouraging relentless, even toxic positivity. And society's focus is on finding ways to survive and thrive in the face of challenges. The message is we must cope with our difficulties, whatever the cost. But over the course of a harvest cycle... Think about how fields have to go fallow. So really, this is all about like understanding that there are going to be tough moments. You can get through it. And maybe you need to lean back for a little while and figure out what you need. And that also was change management in a way. So it's called Wintering by Catherine May. And it's a little bit 
poetic and meta, but it does have to do with the same topic that we've been talking about this whole interview. Cool. Wintering. I, uh, I'm looking for a segue because the one that I picked is also weirdly nature related. Ooh. Um, it's called Our Iceberg is Melting. Okay. But it's not about climate change. What is it about? It's about change management. <laughs> it's by John Cotter and Holger Rothgeber. Hmm. John Cotter's like Harvard kind of OG on change management. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle is Changing and Succeeding any Under Any Conditions. It's from 2005. And it uses this fable of like a colony of penguins that has to move icebergs or like move where its colony is in mm. the sort of process mm-hmm. of how a big group would go through that. Cool. But they sort of learn how to work together. They figure out how to deal with their challenges. And for me, what I thought was cool in the blinks is it shows all the steps. Mm. Like change management isn't something happens and then there's a reaction and then the rest is just dealing with it. There's like a lot of processing that Mm. goes through this, whether it's validating emotions, whether it's coming up with good communication plans, Mm. whether it's figuring out what needs to change, whether it's like the nuts and bolts of like new budgets and new KPIs and new goals, whatever. And I like that it was, it takes a different way to deal with like an otherwise maybe, you know, dry approach to mm-hmm. what, how things change in business. And that the most natural thing in, in life is change. Yeah. If we, if we make ourselves believe that there's anything really resembling a permanent steady state, we are lying to ourselves. I've talked about this before, but yoga really taught me that there's no such thing as stillness. You're constantly making micro adjustments. You're just, you're just tacking against the wind. But then why do we expect work to just stay the same all the time? I don't know. It's funny, right? It's because we want it. Like you get a paycheck, you're like happy, you know I your guess. thing, you're kind of the master of it. You get older and then you kind of feel threatened maybe? Or is maybe. it kind of just really... the idea of like security straight up? Like if I lose my job, I need my paycheck. Or is it, is it like a threat to self-actualization? Like if this changes, I might not be as good at it and that mm. will make me feel worse or something. Yeah. But we all know it changes because we all aren't the people we were in university. I don't know. What, I don't know what that's about. I've wondered about that often too. Huh. I think that we have discomfort with middle states, with yeah. transformative states, just as, as human beings. And it's hard. It's hard to be a gas <laughs> a g- <laughs> if you're not a liquid or a solid. It's it's hard. And you're, you know, you're diffuse. You're moved around a lot. And I think that we have this glamorous notion that being in one more solid state is is going to be good for us. But a thing that you and I have talked about a lot, Ben, is that we realize that that's actually not that satisfying. Right. And we get pretty bored. I think it's it's about the discomfort of being somewhere in the middle and just knowing that you're going to have to change form. <laughs> Wise words to end on. I did not expect this to be that <laughs> deep, but I'm I'm down to end this. I about, got your chemistry lesson, Ben. Yeah. Let's, okay. Let's um, end with let's the, do it. the inevitability of impermanence. Yes. And basically what we're talking about here is uh, recognizing the miracle of existence. Absolutely. Let's wrap it up. Simplify was produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, you, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Phoebe McIndoo, Maria Levichik, maybe Ben Jackson, and Stefan Obadia at Blinkist HQ in Berlin, Germany. If you would like to try Blinkist free for 14 days, please go do it. Go to Blinkist.com slash simplify, click try Blinkist, and enter the code changes. All right, then, till next time, checking out. Checking out. See ya. 